I take for my text this morning, the seventh verse of the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Please pray with me. Christ, you are risen from the dead. We are risen with you. May our life never deny this eternal life, this peace and hope and joy. Praise and glory to the God of life, who is stronger than all kinds of death. Hallelujah. <clears throat> I do love Easter Sunday. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved this holiday more than any other. Growing up in cold New England, Easter was the time that marked that blessed transition from the white snow of winter to the glories of spring. Easter egg hunts, lots of chocolate and sugar highs for kids. Coming to church on Easter, you're immediately struck by all the lilies. I love the smell of lilies. Look at them all arrayed before you. And the pastel colors, I mean, who doesn't like pastels? As an overly preppy New Englander, I was weaned on pastels. <laughs> this is my native color scheme. And the music in church on Easter is so unapologetically and wonderfully triumphant. Leading up to the service, MJ and I were discussing hymns for Easter. MJ would propose something altogether appropriate, and I would nod and say, how about we sing The Strife is O'er? Which, of course, led me to spontaneously sing in my office, the strife is o'er, the battle done, the victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. <laughs> Although I promise I was actually hitting all the right pitches, at least in my head. Uh, Easter, I love it. I love it. And you can imagine my disappointment, therefore, when I turned to our text this morning... In the Gospel of Mark. I mean, come on, Mark. Don't you know it's Easter? The women go to the tomb, the two Marys and Salome, to properly prepare the body of Jesus for his death, something that the chaos of Good Friday had not allowed. It's important to note at this point that it was the women, not the men, who came to the tomb. In fact, in Mark's account, there are no men anywhere. They had skedaddled off somewhere to hide. The women had the courage to pay their respects to Jesus that morning, not the male disciples. So the women show up at the tomb only to find that the boulder, mirac only to find the boulder miraculously rolled away and some random young guy in a white robe who tells him that Jesus is raised from the dead. Then this great, supposedly triumphant account ends rather abruptly with the women fleeing. The last words of the account, the final words of the gospel, the great climax of the story is, or they were afraid. Cut scene and gospel, bye. Now, if that is not a colossal letdown, I don't know what is. The resurrection account of Jesus, the pinnacle of our faith, ends with the women fleeing in fear. This script desperately needs a rewrite. Well, of course, we are not the only people who have found this ending, well, unsatisfactory. At some point in the first hundred years of the church, someone, not Mark, decided to add a new ending. 
you know, to fix it and make it more Eastery. Alas, this later ending leaves out the pastels and the lilies. Apparently they didn't have vineyard vines back then. But the new ending does combine some of the other cool stories of the resurrection. Jesus appears to two disciples while they're walking into the country. He shows up again to the eleven. Remember, Judas was MIA at this point. While they were eating at table and chastises them for not believing. Then finally, Jesus ascends into heaven. By the way, it is this longer ending of Mark where we get the whole bit about the disciples handling snakes. So if, you've ever, so if you've ever heard of Christians today handling snakes and thinking it's somehow biblical, you can tell them that it comes from the longer ending of Mark, which is not originally part of the gospel. <laughs> oh well. And, if you, and, and, if, and we could really try handling snakes here if you wanted to. I do hear that Texas has a great collection of poisonous snakes around. <laughs> now lest you think that my dismissal of the longer ending of Mark is merely a result of my liberal leanings, there is a copious amount of evidence to prove it. First of all, there is the obvious change in style and vocabulary from the rest of Mark. Then there's the fact that Matthew and Luke, who almost certainly used Mark in writing their Gospels, did not use any of this longer ending, but did add their own revised conclusions to make up for Mark's deficiency. Also, none of the oldest manuscripts of Mark have this longer ending. And finally, the great church fathers of the 4th century, people like Jerome and Eusebius, write about the fact that the longer ending is not original and that most of the texts that they had seen did not have it. So yes, the Gospel of Mark ends with the women fleeing the empty tomb in fear. It's so uninspiring, so unlike the way we prefer to celebrate Easter. It's almost as though Mark was trying to describe something realistic, something that actually happened. These women had to watch their friend and leader, someone they admired and left everything to follow, be betrayed by one of his closest friends. Then they had to witness the sham trial that convicted him, the mob anger of the crowds that called on him to be crucified while baying for the release of an actual criminal. They walked in the crowd while Jesus, bleeding and tortured, carried his own cross to Golgotha. He was so worn out from the horrible beatings that he stumbled and couldn't carry on the journey. Think of that. Think of what it would have been like to witness that. Someone in the crowd was forced to carry Jesus' cross before they made it finally to that wretched place. And there, there they witnessed nails being driven through Jesus' flesh and bones. They could hear his ankle bones cracking and his labored cries of pain. They watched him hoisted up for all to see. And then the mocking continued the deriding of this innocent man. Finally, they saw him take his last pained breath before dying. So yeah, when they came to the tomb a couple days later and found it empty with some random young guy there giving them impossibly good news, they were afraid. Of course they were afraid. I would have been petrified. This could not be. News like this doesn't just happen. I saw the scene. I remember, don't tell me all is well. I can't face that right now. Mark tells us that the women were overcome with terror and amazement. Who wouldn't have been? There are no pastels here for a good reason. That would not be realistic. And if there is one thing that Christians are, if there is one defining characteristic of true Christians, is that they are realists, realists to the core. These women, this scene, 
exemplifies it. Christians wrestle honestly and openly with human sinfulness. They always have. Christians take the bad parts of life seriously. Human beings are selfish. That is a fact of life. It does us no good to deny it. People are estranged from one another. We feel the pain of rejections and the alienation from others. We are racked by guilt. These things, all of these things, affect the way we act with one another. Throughout history, Christian theologians have wrestled with the nature of sin in different ways. I don't see sin the same way that John Calvin did or Augustine of Hippo did, but I do see it as a real thing, something that needs to be considered. Liberal theologians, people like Paul Tillich and feminist theologians and process theologians and queer theologians, they all talk about the reality of sin. Some frame it as separation from God, others as missing the mark, others emphasize structural sins like poverty and discrimination, while still others see it as fracturing the web of human connections. But regardless of how we see sin, it is there, it is the ugly part of humanity, and we are realists, like the women at the tomb. In addition to realism about human nature, Christians are also honest about the uncertainty of life. You cannot control your destiny. Things happen to you that you can do nothing about. Christian theologians have wrestled with this, with this endlessly as well. Do we have free will? If so, what are its limitations? What role does God play in our lives and in the events that befall us? Different theologians have had different responses to this problem, but they all acknowledge the contingency of life. As much as I might like the poem Invictus, it's not a Christian poem. You know the poem I'm talking about. The last beautiful stanza reads, It matters not how, st not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I love that poem. It fires me up. But the reality is that we are not masters of our fate. So much of our fate lies beyond our control. Christians know this. And who else knew this? The two Marys and Salome, the women at the tomb. They were realistic about human sinfulness. They had witnessed the worst of it firsthand. They knew that they only had so much control over things. There was nothing they could have done to have saved Jesus. Their response to the empty tomb was a realistic one. They didn't know what to make of it, and they ran away afraid. I think one of the great threats to our society is that we don't have a sense of Christian realism. Americans have this attitude that each of us will one day be a multimillionaire ourselves. Americans expect nothing but lilies and trumpets at the empty tomb, with Jesus preparing a big party for all who show up. Oh, your kid's good at basketball? He can do anything. He'll be in the NBA someday. You know what I mean? You see this attitude in America? This constant belief that everything will be rosy, that each person deserves everything to be rosy? That if you just try hard enough, if you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you can do anything. Your fortune, your pot of gold, it's right around the corner. Don't worry. Cancer will never happen to you. It's a nice sentiment, to be sure. I can see the, attractive, the attraction of that perspective. Who doesn't want to watch keeping up with the Kardashians and dreaming of some glorious, glamorous life as a celebrity? You're good-looking and charming. Of course you'll be the next great actor or model. What? That's a risky business venture? Oh, you mean what I'm doing could get me in legal trouble? That will never happen to me. The problem with this unrealistic outlook, all trumpets on Easter without the realism, is that when things don't work out, people, uh, people all too often become bitter and resentful. 
bitter at those who did make it, resentful towards others, especially when there's a convenient scapegoat. I didn't get that job. It's because of that illegal immigrant. It's because of our overly PC society. It's certainly not because I didn't deserve it or that things just didn't turn out that way. So we have this contrast. This contrast illustrated in our expectations of this text and its reality. We want the great Easter triumph. We want the kingdom of God to be here. We want to have the resurrection mean that all is well and that prosperity lies just in the near future. But the women give us something very different. They give us a realistic response to a very realistic world. They have witnessed injustice. They have witnessed sin and trauma. They have felt buffeted by forces outside their control. Faced with the possibility that things are good after all, they are wary. They don't know how to take it. They are afraid. That is not the end of our story. The women might run away afraid on that Easter morning, but then they go on, as the young man said, to Galilee. It's there in Galilee where they actually meet the risen Christ. They meet him not when they are in shock, not when they are still wrestling with the depths of the reality of sin and uncertainty, but back in their home country. Jesus appears to them in their normal lives. They see him in the breaking of the bread. They find him in the faces of those they recognize and in the strangers they meet. Those experiences, those discreet experiences of Christ, of the real presence of the Holy Spirit, are what remind the women and the other disciples of Christ's ongoing presence in their lives. It's not the wow of Easter in the overflowing lilies and the trumpets, but in the moments of grace that ground them in genuine optimism, the optimism of God's presence in a thoroughly realistic world. The truth is that as I've become older, the more convinced I have become of the reality of the resurrection. When I was younger, I think I expected the wow. I wanted to touch the risen Christ, as Thomas did. I internalized those trumpets and insisted on being bowled over. I tried to wrap my head around the science of it all, what possibilities existed and which didn't. But I have to say that the more often I dismissed it as a fantasy, the more often I insisted the resurrection itself didn't matter to my faith, the more often the realism of things ended up clouding my view. I stopped expecting a miracle. The younger me saw the negative things, the rigid realism. I had a hard time seeing the Galilee experience. But now, now that I'm older, I become accustomed to the realism of the world. I know far better now the reality of human failings. I know that humans are selfish, that I am selfish. I've come now to expect that. And I can accept it without it dominating my worldview. I know that life does not go as I always dream it might. Things happen that are unexpected, some things good and some things not so good. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the daily rhythms of life, God surprises me, delights me, gives me a hope that is deeper and more profound than a hundred trumpets blaring. I feel like I have finally been to Galilee with the women. I just wish I had seen it when I was younger. Think of you who are parents. Having kids is no easy task. From diapers and crying and temper tantrums and the cost of kids and them doing things you wouldn't like, you're reminded every day of the realities of life of how much you really don't control. But there are those moments, those blissful times with your children when you are overwhelmed with the beauty of them, of their very souls, 
the small things they do that strike you as nothing short of a miracle, or at least the product of something miraculous. Your heart is lifted by the small smile, the little struggles and victories they go through. You get to cheer them on from the sidelines and hold them close when they lose and go out for a celebration to McDonald's when they win. Who knew that a meal at McDonald's could taste so good when you see the satisfaction on their faces? Go ask a parent. Ask them. Have you been to Galilee? Have you wandered those familiar roads and seen those familiar faces and yet come face to face with the resurrection? I think of the laughs and memories that can still be shared even when standing around the bedside of a loved one in the hospital. When you laugh and laugh at things that happened years ago, those little moments fill you with God's grace amidst the realism of the world. It's there. It's there every day. God's grace appears. Have you been to Galilee? The longer you live, the more you come to accept the realism of the world, the more you can see and appreciate the grace that makes life so special, so miraculous. My favorite spiritual writers are not those who tell the well-worn stories of the journey from sin to redemption. Yes, those spiritual memoirs can be inspiring, but the older I get, the less drawn to them I am. I know that after those moments of redemption, we still fall into the same patterns of life. There is not some sharp before and after, before my conversion and after. Before was bad and sinful, after just a great glorious waltz with God. No, not at all. The realism of the world doesn't disappear, even with a transformative experience of God and Christ. The spiritual memoirs I appreciate are those which name the struggles, those which are honest about the difficulties of their path, and yet as they walk those paths, they can still relate the amazing moments that keep bringing them back to God. Have you ever read the works of Anne Lamott, particularly her great work, Traveling Mercies? It's not some hackneyed paradigm of bad to good, but it's an honest story of addiction, of recovery, of the struggles that kept coming and of the amazing experiences, the everyday experiences of church, of neighbors, and of raising a kid as a single mother that kept inspiring Anne Lamott. The same is true for Christian Wyman's memoir, My Bright Abyss. Wyman has to face a cancer diagnosis in the end of his life. He wrestles honestly with his evangelical upbringing, his, the leave, his leaving of the faith in college, and of his winding path that brought him back. Wyman writes with such frankness about his experiences of God, his doubts, and his joys in being a Christian, who has seen the cross, who has been afraid at the tomb, and who nevertheless has been to Galilee to see Jesus in a more mature, realistic light. One of my favorite religious, religious poets is the Jesuit Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins had his own struggles in life, and yet he could write with such passion of his Galilee experiences. One of his most famous poems is God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to the greatness like an ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, oh morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost 
over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. That is the Galilee experience of Christians. It is not going from one easy, happy, pastel-filled day to another. It's about a thoroughly realistic view of the world. It's about being afraid at the tomb in the light, in the light of life's evil and vagaries. It's about running away even from good news only to find yourself back home in Galilee and being struck to your core at the miracle of Christ's appearing in nature, in others, deep within ourselves. That is the resurrection message of Easter morning. It's not a one-time affair. It's not something for this day and this day only with all of its joy and chocolate. It comes amidst the daily experiences of Galilee. I honestly feel bad for those people who don't have a belief in the resurrection. They face the world by creating these impossible expectations of it, by putting everything into dreams of the ultimate house, the Kardashian lifestyle, the big break that is surely around the corner, and when life treats them harshly, they are forced to retreat into bitterness. But the Christian way is different. The Christian sees the world as it is, sees the sin and difficulty, but is not defeated by it. The Christian is not defeated because she has been to Galilee and keeps going back there. It's something you should remember on this day and every day, because we all need the resurrected Christ in our lives. We have to remember to look for it so we can repeat again, hallelujah, not only loudly and brashly, but even when we whisper it only to ourselves. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. I have seen him, even here in Galilee.